You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Two of the controversies in genetics today are pre-implantation testing. Is it just the search for the perfect child? And stem cell research. Where is it today and where is it going? Welcome to Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Joel Heller. And with me today is Dr. Eugene Pergament, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago and the past Director of Reproductive Genetics at Northwestern University. Today we're going to discuss all these issues. Gene, welcome. Thank you. Let's talk about pre-implantation diagnosis, what that is, how it works, and, and what the controversies of it are. Well, basically, um, an IVF cycle is performed, uh, what we will now call a standard conventional IVF cycle, in which a woman is stimulated to produce a number of oocytes that cohort of oocytes are harvested and fertilized and on day three uh, it is possible to literally reach in and remove one or two of the blastomeres making up an eight to ten celled embryo and that single cell can be then brought to the laboratory and undergo genetic analysis. That might mean looking at specific chromosomes, uh, particularly like Down syndrome, or it may be involving uh, molecular technologies where single gene mutations like cystic fibrosis could be analyzed. The basis of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is the ability to transfer back those embryos are known to be uh, unaffected by either a chromosome abnormality, such as Dan's, or a, a single gene mutation, such as cystic fibrosis. So what it provides to the prospective couple is the reassurance that a genetic abnormality is not present. Currently, that's being primarily practiced on individuals who are at high risk. The risk of cystic fibrosis is about 25% reproductive risk. And many of the parents undergoing pre-implantation genetic diagnosis have had a series of pregnancy losses as a consequence of that particular disease or disorder. And pre-implantation gives them an opportunity to uh, uh, reassure themselves that that's not going to happen in a subsequent pregnancy. Are patients without a history of a negative event asking for the diagnosis anyways so that they're assured as best they can be that the embryo that's re-implanted is normal? Well, there are a couple of groups. There are women of advanced maternal age, anyone over 35 who is at increased risk for a chromosome abnormality. Certainly might be one population who might ask in advance. Uh, There are some people who are asking uh, to select out male and female embryos and transferring either one sex or the other to enhance the uh, what they will call family planning. In most instances, people who come to for IVF, uh, they just want to get pregnant, quite frankly, and so it's less of a concern to the majority of IVF patients at the current time. Is asking getting, though? If someone asks, will they get the testing? If they asked and are willing to pay, they, they might get uh, what we call aneuploid screening to rule out Down syndrome and uh, sex chromosome abnormalities. That's being widely practiced and, and is available. What's the risk to the blastocyst? What percentage of those blastocysts that have this testing survive? 
actually it's the skill of the embryologist performing the biopsy that's a primary technical factor. In terms of causing any kind of birth defects or injury to the embryo, there's no documentation or, or evidence that that's the case at all. So they're not taking a risk at all by doing that? I don't think there's any scientific evidence to suggest that at all. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Joel Heller, your host, and with me today is Dr. Eugene Pergamet, professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. So when someone gets this testing, if, if God forbid, something comes back abnormal, is the decision then to test the next embryo? That's right. You usually, on average, might have seven or eight embryos. And it, it's understood that many of those embryos, it's just the nature of being a human, many of those embryos will have a chromosome abnormality. It's estimated that maybe anywhere from 40 to 50 percent of any cohort of embryos might have a chromosome change. Many of those never survive uh, the pregnancy in the sense that they don't implant, or if they do implant, they only last uh, for a, a day or two. But there are certain chromosome abnormalities like Down's that have a good chance of continuing. And the only way to pick those out is through specific genetic testing. The embryologist cannot look at the blastomere or the embryo and say, oh, that one's okay and that one's not. Uh, they can talk about quality, but they can't talk about the genetic content. So most of the time, everyone undergoing pre-implantation genetic diagnosis has to know that if they get two or three embryos that are cleared following genetic testing, that they're doing pretty well. Is it considered standard of care today to offer this to everyone that uh, is undergoing this? Undergoing pre-implantation genetic No, I don't think it's considered standard of care. I think from different centers, you will have different programs that will present it and other programs who will say it's not necessary. So I don't think it's all um, straightforward. I don't think there's uniformity in the field. As the geneticist in this part of the equation, at what point do you come in with the reproductive endocrinologist? Well, I'm the one who receives the blastomere following the biopsy by the embryologist and does the genetic testing. And at that point, actually, I, I will have met with the patient and, and her partner beforehand to describe all the uh, positives and negative features. Uh, there's a possibility that they might have eight embryos, and they're all abnormal. And they'll never get it in that cycle. They wouldn't get a transfer at all. And they would have to face up to the fact that they may undergo a second cycle. They may understand also that uh, they might have more than eight or embryos, uh, a lot of embryos available to them, and they have to plan accordingly what would they want to do with these embryos that presumably are genetically okay, and, and those would usually be frozen and uh, preserved for future cycles. If you have just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Joel Heller, and with me today is Dr. Eugene Pergament, professor of OBGYN at Northwestern University in Chicago. We're talking some about pre-implantation testing uh, with in vitro fertilization, and we're going to move on to stem cells. Also in the news quite a bit lately, Dr. Pergament, could you give us a brief overview of exactly what stem cells are and where we're at in terms of their research and use? Well, stem cells basically derive from a developing embryo, a particular set of cells within the early embryo 
that have the potential of differentiating into any one of several different forms of uh, cell types and tissues. And these have uh, the ability to become blood or bone, etc. And it's on that basis that people want to develop these cell lines, learn how to create um, the cell lines that will differentiate into heart cells or liver cells or kidney cells with the idea that this opens up an opportunity for treatment that bypasses, for example, all the need for transplantation and all the consequences of uh, therapies associated with transplantation and gives an ever-ready source of uh, cells uh, that can provide uh, the means to circumvent uh, many different disease processes. You've mentioned embryonic stem cells, but aren't there stem cells available from many different sources? Well, a lot of focus has been placed on the availability of adult stem cells. That seemingly is a controversial feature, and the person who's gotten a lot of attention has also gotten a lot of recent criticism about the nature of that work. So although embryonic stem cells are still favored by their potential, there certainly is some interest, a lot of interest, uh, on the basis of adult uh, stem cells, but that's an extremely controversial field by itself as to the value and the validity of those kinds of studies in adult cells. What about those that advocate harvesting blood from placentas in the cord of the placenta at time of birth? Again, that's another source of uh, stem cells that people are investigating. There seems to be really two problems with uh, stem cells. One is the source of the stem cells. In other words, the government has approved the use of a limited number of stem cells, and there's a great deal of criticisms about those. And so there's a an attempt, particularly in, not in the United States but outside the United States, to develop larger availability of these stem cells. That's one of the controversies. But even those who have their hands on the stem cells the next major step is going to be years and years in, in the working, so to say, will be how to make these cells uh, perform for purposes that we want to entrust it to them. In other words, the process by which they become other types of cell types and tissue types, that seems to also be an enormous challenge that is yet to be met. In the ideal world, I imagine if we could take religion and politics and take it out of it, we'd look at all the sources for stem cells. Is there anything in the literature that definitely shows one source in today's world in the year 2007 is better than another? Most people in the stem cell business would say embryonic stem cells, because of their very early and relatively, shall I say, genetically primitive state, which is maybe not a correct way to say it, but at least um, such an undifferentiated state, and they haven't uh, had all the vicissitudes they encounter in the environment as they mature, um, those potentially have really, I think people are are relying on embryonic stem cells at the present time to be 
the basis of uh, moving ahead with stem cell therapy. Are there anything available today where the stem cells are actually being used clinically? There have been a, a number of instances in various kinds of um, neoplastic states in particular, but not so much in the area of heart conditions or, or cardiac conditions or liver conditions. There are some examples um, that are very promising, but still a long way to go. I'd like to thank Dr. Eugene Pergman, who's been our guest today, professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago, and the past director of reproductive genetics at Northwestern University. I'm Dr. Joel Heller, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.